1: everyone and welcome to the squiggly careers podcast i'm sarah and i'm joined by my co-host helen hello everybody and it's january and today we are recording on the day of our book launch Yay! <laughs> which is a day where absolutely nothing happens so as exciting as it is we then realised that actually oh we'll do the podcast we're sitting in a wee work uh we might go to some bookshops to see if we can find <laughs> our books somewhere and just play it
2: very not cool, and have our picture taken. Fun fact for you: Go on. it is 535 days since we signed our contract for the Swidley career. Okay, you've got too
1: much time on your hands. <laughs> if you worked that out, you have got too I, much. time. I mean, time. I've not just
2: done it in my head. I've done it intentionally because I put it in something that you will see later on today. Ah, uh, a, yeah, teaser, a, a teaser. Te- a, teaser. <laughs> a teaser. I actually
1: uh, I wrote an article today, which I've posted on LinkedIn. If anyone's uh, interested about how we met 19 and a half years ago. And basically this book has probably been 19 and a half years in the making. So uh, yeah, there's no such thing as uh, overnight success. (laughs) And we are the epitome of that. Thank you so much if you're new to listening um, or if you maybe just discovered us over the past few weeks. We're doing a new format for January, just for January, called Squiggly Career Stories, where we've interviewed a really diverse and interesting range of people all about their careers, just so that we get the opportunity for you all to hear. And we got the opportunity to meet some really fascinating people sharing their squiggles, their highs, their lows, their kind of everything in betweens. We hope you enjoyed the first episode with Emma and Levi last week. Give us feedback. Let us know what you think. And we've got another episode coming up for you today with three people. But before that, just in case you are new to the podcast, we have had a few people say, "Wow, you've got over a hundred episodes. <laughs> it's really overwhelming." Um, whereas we think of it as a good thing. But if you are trying to navigate your way through our back catalogue and think, "I'm not sure where to start or which episode," might be particularly useful for January. I've just picked three that might be worth starting with or I feel like might be particularly relevant this time of year. So episode 16, so really going back in time, we talked about how to find a new job. And I do know that as much as new year doesn't have to always mean new you, it does often uh, mean it's a time of reflection and thinking about what next. So that might be useful. Episode 25, building your dreaded, in inverted commas, personal brand, and I hope that we talk about that in a way which is meaningful and authentic and not too cringe. So if you're thinking I should do that, but I really don't want to, perhaps that might help.
2: On our IGTV, so if you go to at Amazing If on Instagram, the IGTV channel, I did a squiggly career tip. So I do the daily tips on Instagram. I did one on personal brand as well that's got a little tool uh, in there. So if you listen to the podcast to hear us talk about it and head to the Amazing If's IGTV channel to hear me like talk through a particular model that might be helpful.
1: And then my last recommendation for this week is episode 55 which is how to get unstuck because I've been talking to a few people since the start of the year and it's actually been a common theme people at loads of different stages of their career feeling a bit stuck they know they want to do something different but they're not sure what's next or what that looks like so those might be three just to uh, get you started but this week as I mentioned we have three squiggly career stories we've got Viv Groskop who is journalist, writer, podcaster. Uh, We've actually had her on the podcast previously talking about how to own the room, uh, about public speaking. So that's a previous guest episode that you can listen to if that sounds interesting. But this is not about how to own the room. This is really about her journey, what she's done in her career. And she is just a really interesting person and actually... You do find that people who are incredibly creative... I actually do think are naturally squiggly. Mm. There is something about being creative... That I think sometimes necessitates... Because it's hard to make money out of the arts unfortunately being squiggly and she's really wise so I think she's a
2: really wise and kind of interesting person to listen to and then I go on to talk to Roland Harwood and we worked out when I was talking to Roland that we'd known each other for 12 years and we'd kept coming back together in our own squiggly careers in different companies at different times and places we kept coming back together and he currently has seven different jobs on the go I mean that that puts us to shame (laughs) so many and he's so interesting like his career he's got a PhD in chemistry he now does very little to do with that at all he has worked for Sony he's founded companies, he lectures, he's just a really interesting person who is all about learning and all about curiosity and describes himself as a compulsive connector Um, and he does it in such a lovely genuine way. That's good personal
1: branding. Yes, indeed, indeed. (laughs) And then our final interview is with a fascinating woman called Roma Agrawal who has an MBE, she is a structural engineer and she is one of the people who built the Shard. I mean, what a claim to fame. I mean, amazing. And not only that, she was kind enough to record the podcast episode while she was on maternity leave. Wow. So I went to her house. I think her baby at that point, I mean, three months old, maybe not even that. Um, her mum came around specially to look after the baby so we could do the interview. And she is just a really interesting lady in terms of the career decisions she's made. She's written a book called Built. She's written another one about buildings for kids. And somebody, I think, very much outside of our world. Yeah. And I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the opportunity to listen to someone um, who's not connected to what we do, but is still kind of living her squiggly career. And again, she shares some really interesting insights.
2: And probably pushing some boundaries a, a oh. all the whole way, whether it's about buildings or being a woman in that industry yeah, and I mean, loads of things. Incredibly
1: tough. But yeah, she's brilliant um, and really thoughtful. You know, she'd really thought about what she wanted to talk about. And she's very quiet and considered. I really had to get her to kind of get close to the microphone. <laughs> she, was, she, was like, she was very like kind of laid back and, and reflective. So I think there'll be a really interesting mix of people for everyone to listen to.
2: Brilliant. So who's first?
1: I think. Okay. So we hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, Please do get in touch and let us know what you think. And if you're enjoying it, as ever, review, rate and subscribe. Thank you so much for joining us, Viv.
3: Oh, thank you very much for
1: having me, Sarah. And what we're going to do to get to know Viv a bit more, rather than, you know, getting into some kind of usual long questions, we're going to do some quick fire warm up questions. So you ready? Yeah, What did you want to be when you grew up, when you were a kid?
3: I wanted to be a writer or a stand-up comedian.
1: Oh, wow. So you are living the dream.
3: Well, I went a bit of a long way around at it, but yeah, I got there in the end.
1: Amazing. One word to describe your career so far?
3: Varied. Out of 10, how squiggly do you think your career has been? I love your podcast and I love the idea of the squiggly career. But in some ways I want to take issue with this squiggly thing because I think any interesting career is squiggly and I think now all careers are squiggly. So I would say out of 10, how squiggly is my career? Kind of zero because it's exactly how it should be. But also by some kind of like old-fashioned standard, then yeah, probably 100 out of 10.
1: (laughs) One person who's inspired you throughout your career so far?
3: I'm going to say Lucy Porter. Who's a stand up comedian who was somebody who really helped me to make the transition from being a writer to a performer?
1: And so, dream job, you've got your dream job. So, let's start with a week in the life of Viv at the moment. So, you have lots of different things that you're doing. You've got your own the room podcast, you've got your book, you do actually a lot of presenting on kind of Radio 4, TV presenting as well. I've seen you do lots of very work related things. I was watching you uh, with Matt Britton from Google talk on stage. So is every week different or do you
3: actually spend the majority of your time doing one thing or another? It's very, very varied. And I've been freelance since 2001. So I haven't gone to work or really had a job in almost 20 years. (laughs) And I took a redundancy when I was 27, I think. And I just got married. I didn't have any kids at that point. I've now got three kids. And I took redundancy from a newspaper job. So I started out working in newspapers and magazines as a writer and an editor. And when I took my redundancy, I thought, oh, this is great. This is going to buy me six months breathing space. I'll do some freelance work and I'll probably start to look for another job. Because the redundancy that I'd taken was from the Daily Express, which was a paper I'd never wanted to work for. I hadn't really wanted to end up there at all I hadn't been able to get a job on a paper I did want to work on so I was very lucky to be able to be paid to leave a job I (laughs) didn't really want
1: that's that's a great
3: scenario yeah so I did that thing I think most what most people do when they go freelance is think oh yeah I'll try this for a while and very quickly like maybe within the first couple of weeks I suddenly realized oh this is what I'm meant to do you know I'm not meant to work for other people I'm so miserable working in an office being in a hierarchy, having to do... I hate having to do what anyone else tells me to do, (laughs) which is a slight problem for adult life. But (laughs) if you're freelance, you can control that quite a lot. So I embraced this life and started out as a freelance journalist. And then I would say my work as a freelancer was quite samey, as in I was writing, interviewing. I was doing bits and pieces of radio and TV as a journalist but it was all very much classed under journalism. Travelling quite a lot as well. I was writing a lot of travel pieces, and then I started working for Russian Vogue as a contributing editor for 10 years from London, but travelling a lot to Moscow because I speak Russian. Compared to an office life, my life was really varied. But for me, it did get a bit samey, even that. And after about 10 years of doing that, I had a bit of a crisis where... I had a a regular column at The Evening Standard and I had a features contract at The Guardian and I lost both of them at the same time Mm -hmm. and they were underpinning a lot of my freelance work. And I knew I had enough work with other people to continue and it wasn't that worrying, but it was a real moment of, oh God, am I doing the right thing with my life? Is this really working out how I'd hoped? Am I really happy? You know, when you have a job, you can blame yeah, other people for can this. blame the manager, the company. <laughs> yeah, so I had no one to blame but myself. And I began to examine all the things that I hadn't pursued in my life that I really had wanted to, and stand-up was one of them. And I realised that whilst I loved writing, what I loved writing most of all was sort of the funny little bits, because I used to write this column and I had to write a long column and then three little bits, and I always hated writing the long column. But the three little bits I loved, almost like mini vignette jokes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I realised, oh wow, if I do stand up, then I can just write as many of those little bits as I want. Yeah. And so yeah, then I started doing stand up, and that. How did you even?
1: How did that even cross your mind? I guess in terms of, was it because you just loved comedy? You've you'd always loved comedy in your life. That you knew people who were doing that. Or was it just genuinely, a? it had always been in the back of your mind? Yeah,
3: it had always been in the back of my mind as something that I really wanted to do but didn't have the guts to do. Mm -hmm. So it was the career option that was too crazy for me to pursue. And, I mean, it was a big deal for me to become a writer. I was the first person in my family to go to university. I was brought up in Somerset in a small town, you know, very rural community, didn't know anybody from London, didn't know anybody who worked in media. So that was already a bit out there. And to have also said, oh, I want to be a comedian or I want to be an actress, which is probably what I really wanted, it would have just been too much. But by the time I'd, you know, lived in London for 15 years and I knew lots of people doing really interesting things and I saw up close how these things happen and they happen by you doing it and failing
1: yeah, okay, by actually just getting started.
3: Yeah, you don't wait to be chosen or wait for your job advert. You know, job advert, stand-up comedian. or it's not gonna... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So you go out and you do it. Needed. So I would have loved to have done it from like 18 or something like that, but I wasn't ready to do it until I was in my late 30s.
1: And how did you get that first opportunity? So you said the best thing you can do is just to do it. Did you just go and put your name down at one of the, you know, a pub where you can do open mic? Yeah, it's funny, mic, or? funny that you
3: use the word opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's very, that's very much a world. And actually journalism and publishing is very similar as well. You create your own opportunities. So... There are certain people that you'd need to impress and there's a certain path that you need to follow and there's a certain way of earning money. But most of all, you need to turn up and and just do your thing. So I started out doing workshops and that's how you meet other comedians and you meet lots of people who teach, often who have guided other people through the path of doing it and I realised that lots of comedians you see on TV they started out in workshops and lots of people they need other people to write for them and sometimes those people come up through the workshop system. You start out doing that and then you find out where all the open mics are happening And you just do open mic. So you're kind of doing an unpaid apprenticeship in front of audiences. And there's no other way to do it other than that. I mean, some people get a lucky break and they might get a paid gig in the first six months. But a lot of people would do that for up to a year or two years before they'd even get paid.
1: Do you remember now how you felt just before doing that first gig? Was it something that... You obviously talk a lot now about owning the room and you've met some incredible people as part of that podcast. Were you kind of really nervous? It felt really alien or actually did it feel like, yes, I'm nervous, but this is what I'm meant to be doing. I feel quite comfortable. I'm enjoying it even.
3: Yeah, I had a lot of ups and downs with it. And I wrote my first book was called I Laughed, I Cried, how one woman took on stand-up and always ruined her life. And that was about doing 100 gigs in 100 consecutive nights as a way of overcoming that feeling of... This is too difficult. I can't go on Mm -hmm. because you have huge ups and downs when you first start because you have loads of fluke nights where you think, oh, my God, I'm meant to do this. This is amazing. (laughs) And then you'll do exactly the same thing the next night and it will tank and you have to spend a long time working out why that's happening and getting yourself used to being in front of audiences and then very quickly, I got asked to do things that were kind of above my pay grade in comedy because I'd had a background as a journalist. You know, I worked for The Guardian and The Observer as a freelance for a long time and I'd interviewed hundreds of celebrities and I knew loads of people in the publishing world because I'd always reviewed books. And so very quickly, I got asked to do Joe Brown's book tour, Graham Norton's yeah, book saw, tour, yeah. Dawn French, Jennifer Saunders. And so I would be going on stage with people like that, in front of 2,000 people and you have to learn how to hold your own Mm -hmm. without taking up the space that they're taking up because people have come to see them, they haven't come to see you. So I had to learn how to operate in those situations really quickly and then doing my own performance, I was getting ready for Edinburgh and I did five years of Edinburgh shows. And so you learn how to cope with loads of different performance scenarios basically.
1: And of all the things that you're doing at the moment, it sounds to me like you love variety in the mix that you have. What gives you the most energy? What do you look forward to doing the most? Or is it just the mix that is the thing that works for you?
3: I really love doing live television and okay. live performance. Oh, so the kind of real, really scary stuff. Yeah, but it is, <laughs> to me, it's no more scary than speaking to you now or having a conversation okay. with a friend. It's because I've got over this idea that everyone's looking at me and Mm. judging nobody cares about me you know nobody cares about any of us (laughs) but and to me it's just something I can really enjoy and it's that real moment of connection if something's improvised and ad libs I really like that and a lot of live television is generally unscripted and I love that moment of unpredictability you just never know what's going to happen next you never know what the other person's going to say you don't know what the interaction is going to be I just love that And when you're now thinking about what you want to be doing,
1: you know, for the next five, ten years or for the next period of time in your career, we'll often chat to people about this idea of retirement, of, you know, education, work, retirement, a three-stage life is really disappearing. People don't have this same sense of, oh, I'm aiming for this point at which I'll stop. How do you think about your career now when you think about the future just generally?
3: Yeah, I think it's different for me thinking about that because... I have never, ever wanted to have a linear career. I've Mm -hmm. never seen myself as working for a corporate or working for a boss. And most of the people who I know, who I hang out with, can't work like that and don't want to work like that. Ever since I was a young journalist, I was interviewing people in their 70s, 80s, 90s who were writing books or appearing in plays or whatever. I remember when I used to work on the Daily Express, I think I interviewed the entire cast of EastEnders at one point (laughs) or another. Every week I'd be going going up to Elstree (laughs) to interview Doc Cotton and whoever else. So I always interviewed people who had not had linear careers. And so it didn't really strike me as something that mattered at all because I saw that you can have many difficult periods in your life you you know i've interviewed loads of actors over the years and acting is a profession where You have to learn to cope with loads of fallow periods because you can fall out of fashion for months or years on end and then you can suddenly come back, you know, be in Game of Thrones. (laughs) That's actually happened to a number of actors, you know, who were huge in the 80s or 90s and you didn't see them and then they've got a massive role in Game of Thrones. So... (laughs) That's always inspirational to me that there are lots of careers in the arts where that squiggliness is just inbuilt. It's just it, yeah. And with such a kind of varied and interesting career, and particularly
1: given all of the incredible people that you've interviewed, spent time with, do you have kind of one piece of career advice for our listeners who are probably all experiencing squiggly? Most people are going to have these varied careers that will change. I think the FT was saying that on average now, people starting off in work will have at least four or five different types of career, let alone different jobs or organisations or industries. What's your kind of overwhelming bit of insight or something that's really stuck with you from your career so far?
3: I was told two things. One really useful thing I was told when I first started freelancing came from Marcel Dargie-Smith, who was the editor of Cosmopolitan through the 80s and the 90s. Amazing old school Devil Wears Prada, kind of journalist, Brilliant. incredible woman. She had ended up freelance after a really long and distinguished career as an editor, where you would have your own wardrobe budget, you would have your own chauffeur, and I've heard this from politicians as well and newspaper editors when the music stops and the chauffeur's not coming to pick you up anymore, <laughs> and you have to pay for your own clothes and you can't charge your hair on expenses, (laughs) (laughs) that's not easy, right? So then you're out there with everybody else being squiggly, being freelance and hustling. And she said, manage your morale. So your morale is the most important thing about your survival, As a freelancer, because if you get depressed, if you get despondent, of course, we all get depressed from time to time, and Mm. there's absolutely no shame in that. And if you feel depressed for a prolonged period, seek help. But I mean, like low level depressed, you know, or anxious, stressed. If you're losing sleep, if you're starting to get paranoid about why people aren't getting back to you, all those things, manage your morale. And it will mean different things for different people. So for me, for example, I love being unpredictable, not having anyone else in charge of me. But I'm very gregarious, you know. I love people, I love talking, I love these conversations, I love finding out about other people's lives. And you can't always do that if you're a freelancer because you're on your own at home. So it's about... I think people do it more now because of spaces like WeWork and there's, yeah. it's, there's a much more of a shared office culture, even amongst freelancers. But when I started out, I had to consciously make meetings with people or go for coffee, meet up with other freelancers so you don't get lonely. So that's yeah. really important. And um, the second other thing I was told early on, um, it's a, friend, a friend of mine called Nikki Chambers, she was running an environmental consultancy when she told me this. And I was thinking... Well, that's not relevant to me because I'm not going to run it in environmental consultancy. (laughs) But that pick up advice from anybody who offers it to you. But she said the secret to running your own business is to always make sure you've got three things covered. So you you split your idea of your business into three parts. One is what you're working on now. So like Mm -hmm. the actual work that generates money. Mm -hmm. Two is pitching for new business. And three is looking ahead And you must split your time equally between these three things. And when she first told me this, I was just thinking, well, that's ridiculous because I need to spend most of my time working on number one, doing the writing, turning up and doing the gig. You know, these are the things I get paid for. But she's right. You know, if I don't do the second thing, which is pitching for the work, Mm -hmm. the first thing will slow down. Yeah. And if I don't do the third thing, then I haven't looked far enough ahead to what's coming up next, which parts of my business are starting to lose traction, which are starting to gain traction. And if you can keep focused on those three things equally, then you have a very healthy short-term turnover and a very healthy long-term prospect. And I can even see
1: how that will be relevant, whether it almost doesn't matter whether you're running a business or not. You know, if you're sitting in any job in any organisation... Doing a brilliant job of your day job is always really important. Thinking about what you might be doing next, kind of in the very short term. We always say to people, don't wait until you want your next job to start thinking about it. That should be a kind of active possibility that you're exploring. But also having one eye to the, oh, what might the slightly longer term horizon look like? And am I investing a bit of time in that and exploring that? So I can really see how that balance. And I think people get very into the number one. Because it's so easy, isn't it, to get so absorbed into the day to day and the to do lists and everyone's got too much to do and the busy thing is just taking over people's lives i think so just stopping and reflecting on that i think could be really useful for everyone not just people running their own business
3: yeah i totally agree i think the danger is that number one bit takes up you know 90 to 95% yeah. of your time the number 3 bit gets completely forgotten And the number two bit is, well, yeah, I'm sure the work will come in. Well, yeah, I hope it does, but on the day that it doesn't. And I've seen this, you know, in freelance over 20 years, how quickly things can disappear and how fast they wax and wane in ways that you just can't predict.
1: One of the points you made earlier
3: really resonated with me around
1: opportunities in the main, and certainly in my experience, and now running my own business, very much you go out and you find them or you make them. Very rarely did they actually come to you. So most of the things that people look at and think, oh, wow, how did those things happen? It's like, well, that's because you've made those things happen. And sometimes 10% of the time, something does come your way. And and that's great. And you're always really grateful for those. But a lot of it is of your own making. And I think it's worth everyone knowing that.
3: Yeah. And the other thing I've learned quite late, actually, is that... Yeah, look for the opportunities, but also create them and be very clear in asking for what you want. So when I set up the podcast to How To Own The Room, I set it up after the book was coming out because I wanted this addition to the book of having these women from all different walks of life talking about their experience of owning the room because the book is very much self-help, how-to. And I wanted people to hear different women's voices really trying to prove the point that I make in the book of you can be an introverted speaker that's great you can be a nervous speaker that's great you don't have to have that natural charisma just trying to show all these different styles and as soon as the podcast came out it was supported initially by the publisher but a publisher is not going to support a podcast indefinitely I was casting around thinking how can I get this sponsored you know how can I get someone else involved who can help to cover the production costs. And I was kind of tortured about it for a long time. And then I mentioned it to a woman I was working with and she just said, well, I sponsor it. How much money do you want? (laughs) Um, And it was as simple as me saying it, asking. I would never have thought to ask for that. No. And I think I found, actually, as I've gone through
1: my career just getting more confident in firstly being clear in your own mind what it is that you need help with and then being able to articulate that in a way that feels authentic and right for you I actually had the same piece of advice working with a lady called Silas Noble and she's always been very supportive in my career for me she's always been a mentor but I remember meeting her for the first time and I was sort of trying to do that oh you know build a relationship just sort of have a general chat and she just went Sarah tell me how I can help you She'd not got loads of time. She wanted to help, but she could only help me if she knew what I needed help with. And almost from that conversation, I got a lot better at just going, this is what I need help with. And actually, it's okay if sometimes people say no or they point you in a different direction. But if you don't ask, then you just never know.
3: Yeah, I get this a lot. And I've noticed it happen with other people as well, of people hedging around trying to make some sort of conversation and sometimes I will just come out and say what do you want from me yeah I know that sounds really aggressive (laughs) now that I say it like that what do you want from me (laughs) and if they will articulate it they might say well I want to know how to set up a podcast yeah and that will slightly irritate me because if you put into google how do I set up a podcast? It will come up with 800 million results, I know, because I've done it to prove this point. I think you do have to ask for what you want, but you also have to make sure that only that person can give you what you need. Don't go asking people stuff that you can get somewhere else. Yeah, we so call it the uh, the lazy ask. Lazy ask, yeah, or ask hole as well, people call it, which is when you ask... <laughs> I've never heard that. Yeah, you ask somebody something and they give you great advice and you don't take it. That's the oh. like ask hole. But... I don't mind if somebody comes up to me and says, "Oh, I really love your podcast. I want to start a podcast. I've done this research and it's told yes. me this. Is that right? Or is this, can you help me with this one gap yeah, that I'm exactly. still trying to figure out or something? Yeah, or Basically so, be specific. Is yeah, so I feel like they're actually being serious. Yeah. Whereas I think there's a lot, especially around the area of podcasting, writing, performing, all of these things that require actually a huge commitment there's this massive interest in them. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, I should have a podcast. I should have a YouTube channel. I should do an Edinburgh show. (laughs) And I can just tell from the look in somebody's eyes when they ask me if they're serious or not.
1: Yeah, so avoid those lazy asks. So thank you so much, Viv, for sharing your Squiggly Career story with us today. If people want to find out more about you, I can give some advice. Definitely follow Viv on Instagram. You just at Viv Grosskopf. Yes,
3: so it's Viv V I V Groskop G R O S K O P. It means fat head in Yiddish. Does it? Yes, it (laughs) does. And the reason um,
1: I would follow Viv is every day, or certainly nearly every day, from what I can tell. Every day, Viv does a post on a room owning woman. And so it's almost become a bit of daily inspiration for me. I really enjoy it. So oh, I'm every so every day glad. you just, one day was your sister. Uh, yes. Uh, I. she's got very fabulous red hair.
3: Yeah, I've had everybody from my sister to Beyonce. I've just yeah. done Lady Hale, who's the yeah. first president of the Supreme Court. I'll do any woman who has been in the news. Obviously, my sister hasn't <laughs> been in the news, but in news in my family. She did a solo with her choir and she owned the room. Someone who's been in the news normally and analysing what it was about their contribution that was so engaging so if there's an oscar speech that's gone viral i want to look at that if there's a greta thunberg moment yeah. that everyone's talking about i want to look at exactly what she did the way she said it mm. how she moved her face i'm trying to analyze all of those things and really geek out about it yeah. thank you so much for joining us it's been really interesting to hear more about your squiggly career thank you so much i hope it was squiggly enough for you it was very squiggly thank you
2: So hopefully you enjoyed hearing all about Viv. Now we're going to go on to my conversation with Roland. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Squiggly Career Story. I am delighted to be joined by Roland Harwood. Hello, Roland.
0: Hello, Helen.
2: I have known Roland for how long? Like 10 years?
5: I'm going to say 12. Did you think, oh, really? Is it, yeah. That sounds
2: very exact. Well,
5: I'm um, all about confident delivery. Yeah, yeah. It,
2: definitely. So Roland and I have met at like various points in our, in our joint squiggly careers. Indeed, like either yeah. I've been doing a different role or you've been doing a different role. But I've always gravitated back to Roland for Roland's ideas, inspiration, thoughtful approach. I just feel like we always have... Curious conversations at different points in our squiggly careers. Oh,
5: thank you. Right back at you. Yeah, and, yeah.
2: I, and I just think a perfect person to mm. talk about squiggly careers and journeys and what we've learned on today's episode. Okay. So, Roland, you describe yourself currently as a compulsive connector on LinkedIn. What That's What right. is a compulsive connector?
5: Uh, a compulsive connector is somebody who loves talking to people and making connections between people and ideas. It's also A two-word way of saying that I do lots of different things, (laughs) uh, which is too long to put in that first top banner in LinkedIn.
2: So people can get a bit of an introduction to your career. Let's do, what was the very first paid employment you had, however old that was, your first paid employment? And then let's do kind of what you consider your main employment today.
5: My first paid employment, I'm very proud to say, was as a milkman.
2: Oh, really? When I was 10
5: years old, (gasps) I got paid a pound a week. Wow, you so went early. I went very early. I was doing I mean, it for love, not money. Probably not legally early,
2: right? <laughs> it certainly wouldn't be now.
5: <laughs> um, used to help the local milkman.
2: Okay, and then where are you right now?
5: Where am I right now? So I'm doing about seven different things. Okay. Shall I list them? Yeah, do. So I'm founder and CEO of a collective intelligence community called Liminal, but I'm also managing director of a very interesting Canadian software company called Iovia in Europe. I'm visiting lecturer at three different universities and I'm a trustee at two different not for profit organizations called Participatory Cities and Hollis.
2: I mean, I feel like I need to take a deep breath.
5: I mean, <laughs> so, it, do it, so do I. So do I.
2: That's interesting. We know answer so your point, so do I. Does it feel like a lot?
5: Yes and no. I mean I guess I've got a lot of interests and a lot of curiosity. And by doing all these different things, it helps me to kind of satisfy that in many ways.
2: One of the things when I, I mean, I haven't spent quite as many different squiggly opportunities as that at one time. But when I was at Virgin and Microsoft mm. and I was doing Amazing If and a couple of other things on the side and also my job, what I found was that they really supported each other and I would either be meeting people or generating ideas and I'd be able to bring them into my day job and it all just seemed to kind of support each of the different things I was doing. Do you find that across those seven different things?
5: Well yeah this is coming back to the sort of compulsive connection. I see you make connections between the things that you're doing which don't seem apparent in advance. So my wife for instance is trained as a social worker, works in that kind of line of work. And we talk about our work occasionally, not that often. But, you know, there's weird parallels between what she's doing and what I'm doing. Likewise, in all the many different things that I do, you kind of see connections because you're doing them in close proximity that you wouldn't otherwise see. So, yeah, lots of benefits, lots of connections to learn from.
2: And did you start squiggly beyond the job of the Milton uh, or did you become squiggly? As in, did you kind of go, do you know what? I always want to have a career where I'm at the same time working on multiple things. Or has that happened over time?
5: So until about the age of 23, I became increasingly more and more specialized through education. So I, I did an undergraduate degree in physics, then had a couple of years out doing music, and then I did a PhD in sort of applied physics, basically. Of course. So, so I then became incredibly specialized in a narrow sliver of science. And I thought, actually, I don't want to do this. There's only five people in the world that kind of I can talk to about this, and I'm not I don't find them terribly interesting. It's not great
6: for a compulsive
2: connector.
5: And so since the age of 23, I guess I've kind of broadened out and out and out.
2: So often when we have conversations with people, they might have... Operated in one profession Mm -hmm. or studied a particular subject, and they're looking to transition into something very, very different. And I think there are very few people that I know that went as narrow as you. The people Mm. that we talked to, they didn't kind of like a PhD in Mm. physics that maybe only five people are talking about the same thing. That's particularly narrow. How hard did you find broadening yourself when you'd gone so narrow? And is there anything that you learned in doing it that might be helpful for other people?
5: Well, I found it incredibly hard. It took me about 10 years to kind of make that transition fully over the course of about five different jobs. So it was definitely not easy, and I didn't really know what I was doing until much later it started to make a lot more sense. It's perhaps worth just adding that my PhD, which was kind of the most specialised bit of my education, I was partly doing that because I was playing in bands and I was enjoying music. So it's kind of allowing me to continue that so even then, I was still had a, a significant side hustle. Okay. Graduating with a sort of very specialist degree, the choices to me at the time, this is the mid-90s, I'm 45 now, the choices on the table were become an academic and earn no money but sort of do it for love or go into the city and earn tons of money and I may well be retired by now had I gone down that route, but I wasn't terribly attracted to either of those. My parents and family are academics, so I sort of knew what that was like mm. and I wanted to take a, a different path. So I essentially, through most of my 20s and early 30s, did five different jobs, completely different book publishing, building websites, project management, did a government public sector job for the London government, then ended up at this unusual organization called Nestor which is where we met. Yes, indeed. And that really was the making of me in many ways because that allowed me to pull all these different strands, music and science and Mm. economics and different things that I was interested in, into something that felt vaguely like a coherent whole and has then sort of informed everything I've done since then.
2: And during those 10 years of finding your way Mm. through like those squiggly opportunities, did you feel like happy and exploring or did you feel a bit confused and lost?
5: Mostly confused and lost, I remember very vividly my 30th birthday, actually, I got very drunk with lots of friends. It was a fun evening, but I will, It was also with a bit of a hangover and all the rest of it the next day, probably the most depressed I've ever been, because I think I came to the realisation at that point that maybe a job is just something you do to pay mm. the rent and not to enjoy it and not for love, because I couldn't see a way out of what I was doing at the time. I was doing a job that I didn't really enjoy. I was being paid reasonably well at the time, but I didn't enjoy it. I didn't love it, and I didn't see how a path out of that. And I think I resigned myself at that point that I have to work to sort of pay the rent, as it were. And that was a very sort of depressing realisation. Having said that, having reached that low point, I forced myself, I guess, on a two-year unofficial kind of MBA in the School of Life where I just read lots of books, met lots of people, went to lots of events, just tried to educate myself, inspire myself, build my network. Which then led me on to two years later joining Nesta, which is then the sort of catalyst for what I've gone on to do ever since then.
2: As someone that's worked in lots of different places, lots of different people, and is a defines yourself as a compulsive connector, how do you stay connected with all those different people over that period of time so that you can leverage them, get back in touch with them?
5: Well, obviously, you know, social media is incredible way to keep in touch with people you know, but more importantly, people you maybe don't see that often. So like you and I have only seen each other maybe once every two or three years yeah. since we first met. But I've been keeping an eye on what you've been up to and obviously you see some of what I share. And so that's brilliant. And I think often your most valuable people in your network are people that, you know, you don't see very often Mm. perhaps. And so, you know, social media is an amazing way to do that. You know, I spend a lot of my time just having random coffees with semi-random people and I just love that and I get energy from that and I've sort of, I guess, constructed a career now that permits me to do that and gives me some legitimacy that that's an okay use of my time.
2: And do you identify as an introvert or an extrovert?
5: Whenever I do those kind of Myers-Briggs-style tests, I'm always slap-bang down the middle. Oh, an ambivert. I'm an ambivert, Ah. yeah. And obviously it depends on context. But (laughs) um, I quite enjoy big social settings, chatting to lots of people, being a bit buzzy around the room. At home, I'm the quiet one. So, yeah, it depends on the context.
2: That is actually sort of the reason for my question because I've seen your events that are like 100% open. They're quarterly different events. Loads of people in a room. And I've seen buzzy Roland there. And then I've also seen... Uh, reflective thinky Mm -hmm. one-to-one Roland so I can see how you can adjust to each of them but I think your ability to have conversations in different contexts is probably what makes you very talented as this compulsive connector as well because you have that ability to go both ways Mm -hmm. so in Um, in this all these twists and turns and you mentioned kind of that point of like Mm. drinking and having a happy night and a rather sad morning I don't know if that's a low but what would you describe as the squiggly career
5: low? So yeah that was definitely a low but that kicked me into finding out what I was interested in, which broadly I would class as innovation and transformation and change. So I ended up at this organization called Nesta, where I did a whole bunch of stuff and including where we first met. And that allowed me to create a company called 100% Open, which I've spent the last nine years of my life building and very proud of that. So that's kind of my high, mm-hmm. essentially, is building 100% Open over the last almost decade. I've got some specific examples that I'm particularly proud of, probably the number one is the Lego Ideas community, which is now about a million people coming up with ideas for Lego products and every single one of them sells out. And it's a really brilliant example of kind of participatory business. And so that's my high. So I'm not answering your question. No, no,
2: I love it. But, and I um, love the ideas.
5: So that's the thing I'm probably most proud of to date in my career. But within that, that was a very kind of squiggly journey. There was a particular project that we won that nearly bankrupted us and was very, very challenging. It was a piece of work in South America in Colombia, At the time, it was kind of four times bigger than anything we've done previously in terms of budget. It was probably 10 times more difficult in terms of complexity for a variety of different reasons. And it was just very, very challenging for me, for the team. We ended up just about being able to eke out a sort of adequate result. So we sort of got the job done, but it took a big toll financially, but also kind of psychologically. And it probably took maybe 18 months to sort of recover both the cash position in the business, which was precarious as a result of it, but more importantly, somehow the mojo and the confidence and the ability to kind of go again. I would say now, kind of eight years or so later, that it was also our biggest learning and, you know, all the things that we sort of did wrong in hindsight on that project, we were able to apply and learn from. So about three years after that low... We then did a very similar project with UBS, the global bank, called the Future Finance Challenge. and It was a very similar project in in what we were trying to do. We are trying to find startups around the world with particular technologies and pitch those into a big corporation. In the case of UBS, it was one in in the Columbia project. There was 11 of them, which was part of the complexity which we struggled with. But I remember finishing that kind of UBS project probably three years or so after the, the Columbia project, and the UBS project went extremely well. And just the sense of kind of relief and and shed a little tear. I remember walking across Waterloo Bridge back from the airport back to our office which was just on the other side of the river and it just felt like um yeah, a really important moment in my in my life and my career and it's a such a cliche to say it, but the things your biggest kind of failures are your also your biggest learnings and so so it's for me so that's what hard
2: I felt of. in the moment though isn't mm. it because 80 months of as well mm. It's just hard and painful. So now then, do you plan what's so you've got seven different things? Something like that. Okay. Are you capping at seven or what? You said you were 45, so there's a lot of career left in this squiggly world. What do you think happens next? Do you just keep adding to your seven? Do you have a point where you're like, I'm at maximum capacity?
5: I think I'm reasonably at maximum capacity. I'm not in a particular hurry to add to that. If anything, I may consolidate a few of those things over the coming few years. I'm enjoying all the things I'm doing. And so if I can fit them all in around other things that are important to me, family and friends and hobbies, et cetera, then then I will continue to do that. So long as I'm learning, that's my kind of number one motivation for doing anything. Yeah, there is a lot of career left. I don't really believe in the concept of retirement. So I think I will be working for a long time to come, hopefully making decisions based on love rather than money. Yeah. And that's my 2020 kind of decade long aspiration is to be making decisions based on love rather than money. Yeah. And I've made good progress towards that, but not entirely. So that's kind of where I want to get to.
2: And one thing we've not really touched on yet that I'd love to support. So the support network that you've built mm-hmm. around yourself during your career, mm-hmm. uh, mentors, sponsors, coaches, whatever it is, mm-hmm. what, what has that looked like for you?
5: I don't think there's a kind of single pivotal kind of influential figure that I can point to that has kind of led me through that. It's A lot of it has been quite self-directed, having said that. I would say I've got millions of mentors, really, as in I spend a lot of my time talking to various people, and I think I always learn something from those conversations. And so I guess I treat every conversation as a kind of an opportunity, maybe for me imparting a little bit of kind of wisdom, but also learning from the people I'm meeting with, whoever they may be. I'm very close to family, so definitely people in my sort of immediate circle of friends and family I would consider as mentors. There's now with Liminal, which is this community of 65 people that I've launched last year, In some ways, I would consider all of them to be mentors in different ways and a co-mentoring community, I guess. So I'm trying to construct an environment where we can all kind of help each other as well as help ourselves within that. So yeah, not a single person I could point. I mean, there's certain names I could name, but if I start naming individuals, then I'll... (laughs) You have uh, to name
2: 65 uh, or more.
5: (laughs) uh, Possibly hundreds. And so I don't think I want to kind of just start naming individual people, but yeah, definitely people that have been influential on my career at different points but yeah generally different people not not a single set of people within that
2: i think what's interesting again when we talk to people sometimes people will say i need to get a mentor like it's this singular person that can resolve every career conundrum or development need that they've got in a one or a series of conversations Mm. and we kind of look for meaningful mentors and of the moment mentors A meaningful mentor could be a relationship that I have with you Mm. over a period of years you see me grow and develop you Mm. know me you can impart wisdom in lots of different areas you're kind of invested in in me for the long term that would be sort of like a meaningful mentor and then we talk about of the moment mentors and this could just be a one-off conversation Mm. and this could be 10 or 100 people where you're just being curious and it's responsive to where you are in the moment and what's interesting and needed part of your knowledge bank and i can sort of hear some of that in what you're saying like you don't think of this as being i need to plan to have a new mentor this year you just see mentoring as a two-way process it sounds like imparting wisdom and gaining some too and that you get that through lots of curious conversations and you spend a lot of time networking slash not working in order to generate that learning
5: yeah no that's brilliant I mean I have tried uh, over the years there have been points where I thought so when I set up 100% open I thought right I haven't done this before it's my first company I need some mentors to sort of navigate me through it I did find a few people who were brilliant in their own different ways so one of which was Rory Sutherland who's a very entertaining great mentor (laughs) he is a great mentor phenomenally smart individual but he was incredibly kind of busy and you know so we had a few conversations and I got a huge amount from those conversations but that sort of fell by the wayside after six months or so I think I tend to wear my heart on my sleeve a little bit I was reflecting the other day on a bit of feedback I had in one of my earliest kind of performance appraisals in one of my first jobs Uh, what I've noticed about you Roland this is my boss speaking at the time she said um, you're not sufficiently good at bullshitting when you don't know what you're talking about you're not sufficiently good at sort of hiding that you don't know what you're talking about and at the time I thought that was very strange feedback and I sort of know what she meant within the context of the organization we were working within there was quite a lot of sort of bravado and bullshitting shall we say and so that was I guess an important skill within that framework I think I'm still to this day, 20 years later, not great at that.
2: And a final area for you, because you mentioned two words that I think are particularly important in smoothly mm. careers, which is uh, reflection and feedback. Yeah. Do you do either of those things consciously?
5: I do. So since I left 100% Open, which was nearly a year ago, I, I've tried to do 15 minutes meditation every morning. I've got three kids, and so it's kind of crazy in the mornings, but once they're off to school, etc., cetera, so long as I'm not kind of rushing into town. Is there a
2: particular meditation
0: style? No,
5: I sit on the sofa and I... It's a combination of catching up on a little bit of sleep, but also focusing on the breath. And then on a slightly more macro level, I try at least twice a year to sign myself up to a course or go to an event or something, which is just learning time, exploration time, what have you. And I mean, I've been doing that for 10 or 15 years. I think I heard Sarah, your co-founder, talking about wanting to go to the Dolek. Yes. And I did that back in 2012, and that was brilliant. So every year, probably since then, I've tried to do something a bit like do that. Do you know
2: what you're going to do this year?
5: I've got a few options, yeah, Okay. but I haven't quite decided
2: yet. Okay, so it's not booked. What did you do last year?
5: Last year I did two things, actually. One was I went, you know the School of Life? Yes. You know the School of Life? Yeah. They do a kind of week-long greatest hits. So I went along to that with 15 other people from all around the world, and it was called the uh, Summer School. That was great. I really enjoyed that. Well, I, actually, now that I think about it, I did three things. So one is I, uh, I refreshed my kind of facilitation skills with a wonderful guy called Johnny Moore, who's another one of my 150 or so mentors, who I've known for many years, and he runs these brilliant courses around creative facilitation skills, so I did that. And then I, the third thing was I went along to a sort of fairly curious but really interesting gathering in November called Base Camp. Where yes. A guy called Chris Katana who wrote The Age of Discovery, who is uh, sort of TED speaker, Oxford Business School, big name in the kind of business school world, and he sort of corralled this interesting gathering of people um, in Toronto two years ago and in London late last year to reinvent the skills and capabilities and resources we need to tackle the challenges that that lie ahead. It was very interesting. I really loved it. Um, it's a very Roland thing. It's a very rolling <laughs> thing. So I'm not, I don't think it's for everybody, but it was great.
2: So to end yes. our lovely winding conversation through your lovely squiggly career, <laughs> what is your best piece of career advice for our listeners?
5: So, well, the two things that immediately sprung to mind that have worked for me for me, the number one driver of any decision I've made in my working life has been, where can I learn the most? Who can I learn from? So is there somebody involved in this endeavor, a boss or a colleague or somebody who has skills or a life that I admire or I feel I can benefit from and learn from and working with them in some shape or form? So that's been my, my number one driver is my quest and thirst for learning. But sort of combined with that... And I heard this horrible word recently, optionality, Mm -hmm. uh, which I don't think I want to use. But anyway, keeping your options open. So, you know, if I take this step, what options can that present? We live in such a sort of uncertain times where who knows where the world will be and where we will be in one, two, three, five years time. So something that gives you options and routes forward. I don't think that's necessarily great advice for everybody. But for me, that has, as the years have gone by, has kind of reaped rewards by being a bit more proactive, thinking about the possible options that a particular role or opportunity could lead to.
2: We often talk about having career possibilities rather than career plans and actually having lots of curious conversations to create those possibilities. So maybe possibilities might feel more, Roland, than
5: optionality. Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) I like that.
6: Possibilities.
2: Thank you so much for your time. I hope that as our squiggly careers continue, we can keep coming back together at different moments and seeing kind of how we can connect and share and learn from each other. I have loved learning from you ever since like nester days all the way through to this conversation. Thank you very much for being part of my network and hopefully one of my kind of mentors
5: through that process as well thank you thank you Helen it's been great
1: and last but very much not least here's Roma talking about how to build the shard amongst other things (laughs) so Roma firstly thank you for joining us today thanks for having me and so quick fire questions uh, so that people can understand a little bit more about what it is that you do going very much back in time and very relevant for you given you've got a three-month newborn which is amazing that you're able to even articulate anything after that period of time but when you were a kid what did you want to be when you grew up?
6: I always wanted to be an astronaut (gasps) and I killed that dream off when I realised that I was scared of roller coasters.
1: Right okay Mm. I could see how that'd be an issue. (laughs) (laughs) And one word to describe your career so far? Unexpected. Out of 10 how squiggly do you think your career has been? I've gone for eight.
4: Oh, I, I could
6: probably go for a nine. I don't know. But yeah, somewhere high okay. numbers. Yeah. One person
1: who's really inspired you at work? I would say Emily Roebling. And uh, your
6: dream job, you've got to work. What would it be? I've said TV presenter at the Ooh. moment. I would love to present documentaries on engineering. So let's start
1: with a week in the life of you. So we Mm -hmm. get to learn a bit more about what your squiggly career looks like today. I think we're probably gonna have to do two versions of this because (laughs) you've got sort of today as in right now with a three month old baby. So let's talk a bit about Matt Leaf and how you're finding that. And then we'll do maybe what it was like before the baby arrived. So last couple of weeks, has it mainly just been feeding, trying to get some sleep? Yeah, that you've summed it up. So it's (laughs) feeding, nappies, sleep, repeat, something like that. Yeah. You mentioned to me before we started, you've been fitting in a little bit of work. What sort of things have you been been doing? I've been (laughs)
6: trying. I did give myself about seven weeks before I did anything. Okay. And what I'm trying to do at the moment is little bits of my media side of career. So, you know, we can talk about the fact that I've got these two parallel careers going Mm -hmm. on. They're both quite different. They're linked. So my day job I've left behind for now, for about nine months. But what I'm trying to do is to keep the second strand running. So I've done a couple of podcasts. I did a lecture last week. I'm applying for some grants to make more podcasts for myself. But those things are hopefully a little bit more flexible. So I can feed it around um, the very flexible sleep routine that my little one
1: currently has. Yeah, I think if there's anything that teaches you about flexibility and the need to sort of let go of plans it's having a newborn (laughs) so let's talk a bit about your day job so Mm. nine months ago what does the day job look like as a so you're a structural engineer yes um most people listening and actually certainly women listening very unlikely that you're a structural engineer I think 90% of structural engineers are men what does that actually mean to be a structural engineer
6: right so in really simple terms it's my job to make buildings and bridges stand up we study the different forces that nature throws at buildings. So in the UK, that's mainly gravity and wind. Mm-hmm. In other countries, you add earthquakes or flooding or you know other things like that to it. And then we do maths and physics, and we design a skeleton for a structure. And everything that comes around that skeleton is almost the architecture of the building. But really, these visions of these beautiful, curvy, or whatever, tall buildings, or yeah. whatever you might want to create, they wouldn't exist without a structural engineer being involved. So that's been a really incredible thing to be a part of and I spent I would say the first sort of 10 to 11 years of my career purely doing, you know, your kind of structural engineering job and now I've started doing a slightly different role which is right at the front end of a project so before the project even exists how okay. do you actually create the project so it's about speaking to developers to speaking to local councils people that have land people that might be Thinking about buying land and then trying to come up with a concept and idea of how we can actually make that work, and then getting the paperwork and contracts and you know the complicated things in place, create the project. And now I kind of pass that on to engineers to design. So I've just kind of shifted focus, okay, um, on the phase of the project. I would say.
1: And how did you even kind of get into structural engineering? Mm. Was it something that you discovered while at university? Do you know of the people who've done that sort of a job? There aren't loads of female role models, certainly that I could find no. out there.
6: <laughs> so my path into structural engineering was squiggly. So um, <laughs> of course, so a good story to um, tell you now. I grew up in America and India, and particularly in India, there was a huge emphasis on studying maths and science, probably to the detriment of, of English and history and right. other subjects like that. So it's almost the opposite way round to the UK. So it was very normal for me To like maths and physics. I moved to the UK and then did almost like the textbook A levels for engineering, although I do stress that there are no textbook A levels for engineering. (laughs) You you can do a big range, but I did maths for the maths, physics, and design and technology. And I did that at a girls' school in North London, which was really, really good, amazing teachers. But somehow, no one ever thought to suggest to me that I might consider engineering as a career or as a degree. Mm -hmm. So I went off to study physics, which was really promoted and encouraged at my school. And I loved it. But at some point, I felt like I was just sitting either with a pen and paper or on a computer screen and doing this amazingly interesting work. But I wanted one more step. I wanted to get from the theoretical side of things to actually making something and it just so happened that I was trying to earn some money over the summer and I worked within my physics department in what they call the design office. They were mechanical engineers and they were designing equipment that physicists would use in their experiments. And that just kind of hit me. Light bulb moment. Yeah, light bulb moment going, wow, you can use maths and physics to create real objects. And I said, right, this is what I want to do. So I literally picked up the prospectus of Imperial College and I flicked through it and I said, oh, I quite fancy the sound of structural engineering because I had an interest in architecture. I actually emailed the course director and had a conversation with him. I went in to meet him and I said, I've got this physics degree. Would you even consider letting me do this master's in structural engineering? And he kind of ummed and a little bit and said, actually, yes, because you should have really strong math skills off the back of your degree. And so I got admission to that course. It was a one year master's. And I was the only person on that entire course that did not have an engineering undergraduate degree. And in fact, most of the people on that course had been working as engineers. So, oh, so that okay. was a bit of yeah. you know, baptism by fire, as they say.
1: Yeah. Mm. And let's talk a bit about you always have two careers at the mm. moment kind of in parallel. Yeah. So alongside the kind of day job of structural engineering and um, what does the second squeal
6: look like at the moment? So it's been an amazing journey, and it's not one that I planned at all. So I spent, I think, the first six years of my career doing my structural engineering work, really loved it, and that involved doing technical stuff, whether that was hand calculations or doing stuff on a computer, models, going out to meetings. One thing I learned quite quickly was that engineering requires a lot of communication skills and being able to relate to other people and getting out there and talking and I did that. And then I worked on the shard for six years, yeah. which was very exciting. And I was probably one of the youngest engineers on that project. And then I kind of my career grew as the building. As the, as the shard up. grew. Yeah. <laughs> um, what happened was that me and my colleagues started getting invited to speak about our work on the shard. So I started off doing really technical lectures that were like an hour long about the type of steel we used and how we did the concrete and how right. we built the basement. But then slowly but surely I started getting invitations from schools and from women's groups and from mm. universities because I was a little bit different so I think I was about 25 26 at the time and I was then being asked to present to 5 year olds <laughs> now clearly quite a different audience I had to find um, a different way of communicating what structural engineering was and how we built the shard to 5 year olds And that's where it all started. So I started doing presentations to all sorts of different age groups, to people who didn't have technical backgrounds. And then I thought, well, actually, I really love this communication aspect. Somebody actually came up to me and and asked me if I'd ever thought about writing a book. And I said, that sounds like an absolutely horrendous idea, (laughs) because I don't like writing. And I just said this is a terrible idea, but as these things happened, so over six months it kept percolating and I started getting ideas and I got a little bit excited about it. And I think the way they sold it to me was, well, think of all the presenting and the presentations and the speaking engagements you can do. What I didn't realise, it would take four years to get there (laughs) of of writing, which was really difficult. So anyway, I wrote the book, um, which is called Built, and that came out in February last year. The paperback came out earlier this year. And then... My publishers, Bloomsbury, asked, well, actually, we love Built. What about doing a version for children? So I'm sort of working on that at the moment, which is super exciting, because that's, again, completely different than writing a book for adults. Then the other thing I decided I wanted to do was do a a podcast. So I did a little kind of mini-series of three episodes. And if you want a little taster of the book before you buy it, you can listen to the podcast, um, which is called Building Stories. And it's all about basically communicating engineering using stories which I just didn't think was happening in the way and the scale that I would have liked. Since you started your career as a structural
1: engineer and then almost as these parallel careers have emerged that's an awful lot of different things often simultaneously Mm. and one of the things that we talk about with squiggly careers is At their best, I think they can be full of freedom, opportunity, creativity in its broadest sense. Mm. And when people are really thriving, I think careers today can give people so much fulfilment. At their worst, Mm. they can feel overwhelming, quite confusing, quite stressful. And there is a lot. I think the expectation Mm. on ourselves is higher than ever before. When you kind of reflect on kind of your years of working, sort of 14 years working so far... Is there a particular couple of high moments that you kind of go, oh, that was a real tipping point where I started to get a real sense for what I loved doing the most?
6: Yeah. So I would say earlier on in my career, standing on the top of the shards, you know, the first time I stood up, there's a floor. That's a pretty incredible (laughs) thing to be able to say. (laughs) Um, There's a floor at level 87, which you can't actually access anymore. If You've been on a secret floor. On a secret floor. That was pretty cool and I think I was up there with one other person and so it was a very serene moment and I was very conscious Mm. of the fact that I was standing on the tallest man-made structure in Western Europe. That's not strictly true because the Eiffel Tower is a bit taller but I don't know if you can get that high. To the highest bit of it, yeah. So, So that felt really, really special. And I think in terms of the other squiggle, my book launch was was a real high point for me especially cuz it had been so difficult i found writing so incredibly difficult and also the whole process like you said because i was trying to do my day job and write at the same time and and mm-hmm. i was doing 40 presentations a year at that point in time as well it was stressful yeah and quite overwhelming so during the course of your
1: career i know that a lot of people will be listening thinking wow she's really incredible she's done all this amazing stuff worked <laughs> on the shard obviously academically really strong done all these brilliant things like podcasts and writing there must have been some tough moments Mm. along the way when have you found it hard or when has something just not gone to plan that you have really had to kind of build your resilience or bounce back from Mm. um because I think the thing I always talk to people about is certainly in squiggly careers I never see anything that gets anything close to an overnight success people have usually worked really hard things haven't gone to plan at some point but they've come back and they've kind of been determined so what were those moments been for you
6: yeah so I mean I'll, I'll do a little one and then a big one so I, I would say the little one was a little bit what we've talked about before which is just being overwhelmed with the amount of stuff yeah. that was happening the time management of it the fact that I was trying to write a book while working five days a week yeah. and I quickly realized because I was getting migraines I was ill like oh. you know really stressed and this was clearly not working so the way I got around that eventually was to drop down to four day weeks with my right, day job. Yeah. And that made a world of a difference because it meant, you know, Monday, Thursday, I could focus on that thing. I would still be, you know, hanging off the tube during rush hour, doing my research, for the yeah, book, like yeah. reading stuff and post-its and things. But then I would put that away, do my job, come home Fridays. I would sit and then consolidate everything I'd read. during right. the week. So that really helped me going part time. The second one, which is really tough. So we've mentioned my three month old. She's an IVF baby, so yeah. it took me about three years of really difficult kind of realizations one after the other before we could have her, and we were lucky we could have her because yeah. it doesn't work out for everyone. I was actually never 100% sure I really wanted children, mm-hmm. so snap, that was kind snap. of strange. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my husband really wanted kids, and I said, you know what, I'd quite like one, and then suddenly when they tell you that, oh, it's not working out, yeah. it's going to be difficult, then you are think, well... That wasn't the plan. The no, plan no really happen. won't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, I would say that was difficult because anyone that's gone through infertility will know that it's a real rollercoaster of emotions. And then the IVF is really, really tough. So it's physically massively demanding, but mm-hmm. also mentally. I don't think I was prepared at all for how mentally challenging it would be. I got the physical thing, you know, yeah. injecting yourself up to three times a day for up to three months. And that was happening at the same time So I started my first round of IVF the week after my book came out. So this was now when um, I'm getting these amazing invitations to come and speak all over the world. And I'm having to say no to 90% of it. So that was really hard. So it was hard to kind of go through the actual process itself, but then also to give up what I felt was a huge piece of why I wrote the book in the first place which you know these opportunities to go and speak and I basically had to keep reminding myself that it's fine if it doesn't happen this year I can go to that place next year or the year after that and that patience um, which is not one of my strong suits was definitely tested and challenged And to be honest, it's still happening. But now I have a baby, so it makes it completely mentally different because I have the baby. Whereas with IVF, you're going through this horrendous thing and then saying no to the stuff that you love doing. So that's really difficult.
1: And I'm sure during your career and probably now more than ever, you will have had people that you've looked up to, maybe been role models or mentors or managers you've worked for. Who have been really instrumental in terms of supporting you. And you mentioned somebody at the start of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so perhaps let's talk about the people who've been inspiring in your
6: Squeaky career so far. Fantastic. So I'll start with the story of Emily Roebling. Mm. Um, so she's from the 1800s, so not somebody that's oh, well, directly. I feel less bad about me. not knowing her now then. <laughs> no. And then we'll talk about some real life people. But so Emily Roebling was the daughter in law of the engineer that designed the Brooklyn Bridge. Okay. And he very sadly died in an accident on site. And then his son took over the project. That's Emily's husband. And he was an engineer as well. And he was very severely disabled from things that happened on site. And just as the project was going to be taken away from the Roebling family, Emily stepped up. So, you know, we're talking about 1800s, as I said. So this was the period in which... Darwin said that women were intellectually inferior to men because we hadn't evolved as much. Okay. So this is the time... Um, tip, you know, just to, time. <laughs> yeah, just, just to put it into context. And she did it due to necessity. She had actually been trained in science and geography and she had been well-educated. So she initially just responded to letters for him and then went to learning cable theory and, you know, the maths and whatever she needed in order to run the project. But also really importantly address politicians, address workers on site, so you know, communicate with them, relate to them. And for 11 years, she basically ran that project oh. under her husband's name, of course. Okay, throughout. of course, of course. But, you know, she was a huge force behind that bridge getting built. So I think that's a really incredible story. And I think in terms of, I guess, real-life people, mm-hmm. as it were, you know, I have to say my parents really fostered that interest in science and construction and Lego and building and stuff. yeah. And I would say then, again, I had really fantastic teachers in school that really promoted and encouraged me to study physics. And that's unusual. During my career, I've had amazing managers. I've had not so good managers. So there's always been a mix. But yeah. I would say having fantastic line managers makes a huge difference. I would say particularly during IVF, My manager, I I actually told him. So a lot of women don't actually tell people at work. And I don't know how you can get through it without telling people at work. But I told him and the support I got from work made a huge difference to my mental well-being during that phase, which took about eight to ten months, I think. So that's really incredibly important. And I've had, I would say, unofficial mentors through the years. And they've changed in different phases of my life. They've been different, but they were women- particularly during the early part of my career that I looked up as role models. And then the other one I would say is my husband and I mentor each other. And I think it's really good for people to remember that a mentor doesn't have to be some kind of person that you officially go and see. You know, he works in a very different industry to me, but has faced a lot of the similar challenges about being in a minority for different reasons. And we've had lots of very deep conversations about, all of that. So I think that's really important. I think the final thing to say is I've had some career coaching okay. and I've found that to help. And I've also had different career coaches at different phases of my career, depending on um, what I've needed at the time.
1: And as you kind of reflect on
6: your career so far,
1: what are the things that you would be saying to people now? And, you know, you actually do spend time in school, so I'm sure you mm. get asked for your advice quite a lot. <laughs> but if we have people listening who are thinking, there, you might be interested in going into STEM generally or whether that's engineering specifically or actually just doing something that is outside of the norm because I guess that, that is a lot of what you have done is you wouldn't be mm. the same as everybody else in lots of ways what kind of
6: advice would you be giving to other people? So I think my little tagline would be to be curious so I mean that in so many different ways if you're interested in engineering then go out and do your research, figure out what it is that you can do. Because engineering is such a broad field. I mean, I'm structural engineering is one tiny right, yeah, portion yeah. of what you can do as an engineer. And then you bring STEM in and, of course, that just broadens it out. Yeah. So I would encourage people to do their research. And, you know, the stereotypes exist, but try and look past them and do something that you think you'll enjoy and do that research. So kind of be curious about that. The other thing I try and encourage people to do, especially kids, because kids have this innately where they're walking around just going, why, 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 all the (laughs) time. (laughs) Yeah,
1: my my toddler started that. It's getting quite annoying. Why, why? You're like, do it, just do it.
6: Because I said so. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So we should keep that sense of curiosity about the world. You know, why is the building that we can see outside our window made from brick? And where did that brick come from? And what's underneath my feet right now? And how do the materials get here? How do they lift that chimney to the top of this tower? And just kind of be curious about that and you'll suddenly find, even if you're not an engineer, don't want to study engineering, it's still something enriching. I mean, we all read books, don't we, about subjects that we're not interested in and and maybe you'll find that there are all sorts of subjects around STEM that completely fascinate you. And so your little girl is three months old Mm. at the
1: moment. What do you hope will be different by the time (laughs) she's starting work?
6: I hope that she would never feel that Because she's a woman, she's different or she can't do something because that would be a real shame that, you know, I feel that that's a challenge at the moment as well. I would hope that the world is a a more together place, perhaps, that people from all different cultures, backgrounds, languages, colours are just accepted as being productive parts of our society. And I guess I hope also that she won't have too much pressure on her to be a certain way or, or do a certain thing and she can just kind of find what works for her in her life.
1: So thank you so much for joining us today, Roma. I feel more informed about structural engineering, certainly, (laughs) than I was a week ago. If people want to keep learning and staying curious about you and the work that you're doing, uh, where can they go to find out more?
6: Um, Great. So I am Roma the engineer. So not (laughs) Bob the builder, but Roma the engineer. And you can find me on, so I have a website, Twitter and Instagram that all are Roma the engineer. My book is Built, so you can find out more about that on my website or I'm on different book buying websites or (laughs) bookshops and if you're interested in my podcast and to listen to the three little episodes that we've done that's called building stories and again there's a website there's twitter and there's instagram so building s-t-p-o-d
1: Yeah, or you can also get your podcast from your website, because I was listening to the Shard one thinking. How Because you look at that building, and I just always think very basically, how do those windows get cleaned,
6: is my first question. That's (laughs) that's me
1: being curious, but you can listen to them there. (laughs) Yeah, and that's buildingstoriespodcast.com. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It's been so interesting to talk to somebody in such a different area to my own. And, Joe, I was quite nervous today, because I thought... Oh, I'm not very knowledgeable, you're going to be way smarter than me, but you've made me feel very relaxed and very at home in your house. So thank you very much.
6: No, thanks. It's been an absolute pleasure.
2: that's the end of this week's podcast and the second in our squiggly career stories. We are back next week for another one and we have two more fantastic people who are going to be sharing their stories with us. We've got Polly McMaster and I talked to Polly. Polly is the founder of The Fold, which is just like a gorgeous gorgeous fashion business that I love but it's mm-hmm. really, You're in your element I there. was in my element but I'm, and I've admired her for a long time and her business, The Fold, is not just about beautiful clothes, it's actually about empowering women and helping women to be confident and feel confident and I, I love All the things that Polly does, but Polly's squiggly career stories is so interesting because she's been like a management consultant. She's got,
1: didn't she? Yeah,
2: she's got um, a PhD. uh, Like she started out in kind of the sciences. Just really, really interesting and lovely with it so i love talking to her and then you'll hear sarah talking to dr caroline casey who amongst other things i mean she's got an amazing ted talk she's such a visionary speaker but she is the founder of something called the valuable 500 and talking to caroline um
1: was actually a really emotional experience she is very candid about the kind of the highs and the lows of her experiences so i think at times that might be quite a tough listen but I think her honesty will shine through and I think I think everyone will find it, will go
2: away feeling so inspired. Oh, so yeah, that's to look forward to next week. Thanks as ever for all of your support, all the people that have been recommending the podcast, recommending the book, sending us messages on Instagram. It's amazing, we really appreciate it. We really, it. really appreciate it and we're so glad that we're kind of all part of this Squibby Career community together. So thank you very much and we'll be back with you next week. Have a good week
1: everyone, bye for now.